the incarnation happened in real time, in a real place, and to real people. As we stand, let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. May it be a lamp to our feet, a light to our paths, and a strength to our lives. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. During the past few weeks, the Met on the Metro, the Dalek-like voice has been referring to the festive season, and I wondered what that was. Perhaps the delights of shopping at the Metro Centre, of crowded public transport, of needing tissues for watching Downton Abbey, of the joy of receiving a present and then taking it back to a charity shop, of being nice to grumpy old granny. The festive season, a secular ho-ho-ho bonhomie of self-indulgence wrapped in tinsel. That is the world of the secular festive season, a festival quite devoid of religious significance and interference. Like the comment from the girl on seeing a religious Christmas card, fancy that, they've even brought religion into Christmas and of a recent survey in which some thought that the first visitor to baby Jesus was Father Christmas. But scripture insists that there is another narrative, another set of events, another focus. Christmas is when we thank God for the incarnation, of God with us, of God entering into our situation, of God identifying himself with us, of God become man. I sometimes think that evangelicals need to be reminded that there even was an incarnation. Yes, we are told that Jesus was born to die to take away our sins. But Jesus was also born to identify himself with us, to touch base with his creation, to usher in the kingdom of God, to reveal something about the character and the nation of God. And John tells us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. But have you, have I, seen his glory? Jesus like us, Jesus with us, Jesus alongside us. Like us in every way, yet without sin. Not that he appeared to be a human being, but that he was truly man, never laying aside his divinity, but always fully human, nothing less than truly God and truly man. And I sometimes think, too, that our presentation of Christmas is simply too twee, too sentimental, too sanitized, too far removed from reality, too much shaped by tradition and sentiment and too far removed from scripture. And many of the Christmas carols don't ring true. What do you make of the words in the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem? 
how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. Is childbirth silent? Is it pain-free? And what about the cattle are lowing and the baby awakes? The Pope was right when he dismissed as myth the presence of oxen, asses, camels, and other animals at the birth of Jesus. And the magi or wise men who were not kings, were there three of them? There were three gifts, but were there three travelers? And when did they come? Certainly not at Christmas. And where did they go? Not to a cave, but to a house. Tonight we're looking at a post-Christmas event. It's dramatic, it's a tough story of danger, of terror, of death, of escape, of a journey, of exile, of return, of resettlement. The incarnation happened at a particular time, in a particular place, and in a particular set of circumstances. Do turn with me as we look tonight then at Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. It's on page 966. And there's an outline of the sermon on page 6 of the service sheet. And I have three simple headings, calendars and kings, journeys, dreams and prophecies, and believing and responding. First, calendars and kings. Chronologically, we have moved on from Christmas to Epiphany. While we associate the shepherds with Christmas, the Magi are associated with Epiphany. Their visit probably occurred two years after the birth of Jesus. We're told that he was no longer a baby but a child. And the family were living no longer in temporary accommodation in a cave, that is the traditional place for the birth of Jesus, but now they were living in a house. And then notice in verse 13 that the mood changes, and what do we find? Not a nice, sanitized nativity story, but a brutal world of intrigue, of political rivalry, of terror, and of mayhem. From 66 BC, much of the Roman Empire had been ruled by puppet kings like Herod the Great. He had ruled from 37 to 4 BC. He was a great builder of cities and temples, fortresses, palaces, hippodromes, and amphitheaters. He loved power. He imposed heavy taxes. He was also cruel. He was violent. He was a ruthless tyrant, a monster who killed members of his own family. But work out the dates. If Herod died in 4 BC, then Jesus must have been born about 6 BC. In the 6th century, Dionysius the Small, what a lovely name that is, Dionysius the Small, was a monk who invented the calendar, but he got his dates mixed up. Jesus was born earlier than he had calculated. And Jesus was probably one of no more than 20 or so boys born in and around Bethlehem. Then it was a small village outside of Jerusalem. Today it is a suburb of the modern city. After the death of Herod in 4 BC, his kingdom was divided among his sons, all of whom were called Herod. Herod Archelaus, Herod the Tetrarch, and Herod Philip. For 10 years, Herod Archelaus ruled Judea and Samaria. Like his father, he was a great builder, but he was even more brutal and cruel than he had been. 
He angered the Jews by marrying the widow of his half-brother, and he was deposed and banished. After him, Judah, Judea was ruled directly by Roman procurators, one of whom was a certain Pontius Pilate. One of the other sons of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, ruled Galilee and Perea. And he too was a builder, and he developed Tiberias on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And that is the Herod who executed John the Baptist and sent Jesus to Pilate for judgment. The background to Joseph and Mary moving back to Nazareth is found here in verses 22 and 23. Rather than settle in the south under Archelaus, they moved to the north under the rule of Antipas. I'm sorry if that was a bit complicated and rather boring, but it does fill in the gaps and explains when it was that Jesus was born during the reign of Herod the Great and that he, Herod, instigated the murder of the innocents, that Joseph took his family to Egypt and returned to Judea where Archelaus ruled and rather than remain there, they journeyed north to their hometown of Nazareth in Galilee where Antipas reigned. All of this reminds us that the gospel narrative is set within an historical context. It hasn't been made up. It isn't simply a well-crafted story. The incarnation happened in real time, in a real place, and to real people. That is, of course, how we encounter the incarnate one. Or rather, how the incarnate one actually encounters each one of us in our daily lives as we're out and about in God's world, as we begin a new year, Jesus is present with us. But how real is our encounter with him? Is it fresh and living or reduced to sentiment and abstract doctrine, a matter for conversation and debate rather than everyday living? How real? is our encounter with Jesus. First then, calendars and kings, and secondly, journeys, dreams, and prophecies. Much of the Bible narrative is about journeys, journeys of God's people, people always on the move. And the two pivotal moments in the Old Testament involve journeys, the exodus from Egypt and the exile to Babylon. Those events are two major people movements in the Old Testament. But if you think about it, many individuals also were on the move. Abraham, Jacob, Ruth, Samuel, Elijah, Jonah, Jeremiah. And in the New Testament, Joseph and Mary, Peter and Paul. And if tradition is to, believe, to be believed, Thomas the Apostle traveled to South India. In scripture, Egypt is seen as a place of refuge, a place of asylum, a temporary place of exile. But Egypt is also a place of bondage, of confinement, of slavery, of sorcery, of magic, and of witchcraft. You wouldn't choose to go to Egypt unless you had to. There may be food and shelter there, but it's not the sort of place to make it into a permanent home. It is a place for travelers but not for settlers. The Exodus event remains significant for Jews, and it continues to resonate 
with the experience of Christians. They had once been slaves, but now they were set free. They had been oppressed, but now they were liberated. And for us, freedom and liberation are at the heart of the good news. Once we were slaves of sin, but now through Christ we have been set free. What then do we find here in Matthew chapter, chapter 2? The headings in the Pew Bibles give us a neat summary of what's happening. The escape to Egypt and the return to Nazareth. And we also read about angels and dreams. Look at verses 13 and 19 and 22. God spoke directly to Joseph through his dreams. Leave Judea and escape to Egypt and then return to Israel. But once they were back over the border, Joseph had another dream. And rather than settle in Judea in the south, they returned to Nazareth in the north. But Galilee was no mere backwater, but the gateway to the world, a center of trade and people movements. And Galilee was a much more open community than Jerusalem. And many who lived there longed for the coming of the Messiah. It was fruitful ground indeed for Jesus' ministry. How does God speak to us today? Probably not very often through dreams. Then the people had what we call the Old Testament. But they also needed to, to have and to know and experience the direct leading and guiding of the Lord. Now, of course, we have the New Testament to illuminate, to guide, to inspire us. God seems not today to use dreams as he once did to communicate with his people. But sometimes he might just do so. And we must be open to that surprising possibility. How does God speak to us today? Hopefully we would say from the Bible. From God's written word, we encounter God's incarnate word, the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as well as journeys and dreams, the narrative here picks up several Old Testament prophecies. Much of Matthew's Gospel, of course, is presented to us as being a fulfillment of what had gone before. And here in this chapter 2, there are three um, quotations from the Old Testament, and a fourth echoes the spirit of the Old Testament. Let's look at these in turn. Verses 6 to 7. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Where was Jesus born? Not in a palace in Jerusalem, but in a cave in Bethlehem. Not surrounded by wealth and power, but in modest, humble circumstances. Remember the words of the hymn? Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became as poor. That's what the incarnation is all about. Verse 15, out of Egypt I called my son. Here we see Jesus as the new Moses. As Pharaoh tried to kill Moses, so Herod tried to kill Jesus. Jesus is the one who will save his people from slavery. Not from slavery, but from sin and death. Jesus had fulfilled what had gone before. The one who can and will save and who will redeem his people. Verse 18, a voice is heard in Ramah weeping 
with great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. The village of Ramah is near Jerusalem, and the Jews who were about to go into exile assembled there before they set off for Babylon. So do you see the point that is being made here? Rachel, who was buried at Ramah, cried from her tomb for the exiles, and they'll be crying too for the Messiah as he went into exile into Egypt. The Messiah who was to escape from Herod the Great would one day return, he would rule and he would reign. Yes, there was grief and sorrow for his exile, but there would be great joy when he returned. And then that strange reading in verse 23b, he will be called a Nazarene. This is not a direct quotation from the Old Testament, but more of a prophetic summary of what was said there. But it does make an important point. To refer to somebody as for coming from Nazareth is a term of disgrace. Paul in the New Testament is referred to as the ringleader of the Nazarene sect. And the drift of verse 23 is that Jesus the Nazarene was regarded with contempt. This, of course, is not surprising because he was, after all, the one who was despised and rejected. So then, do you see what is being said here in Matthew chapter 2? The Old Testament points the way to Jesus. As we dip into the Old Testament, we see it pointing us forward to the one who was to come, who would identify himself with us, who would save us from our sins. Some Christians are over-concerned with what they call unfulfilled prophecy. But the Bible makes it clear that all prophecy finds its fulfillment in the incarnate one, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Calendars and kings, journeys, dreams and prophecies, and thirdly, believing and responding. Just now I made some remarks about our presentation of Christmas. And we certainly need to separate myth and sentiment from what is found in Scripture. We need to strip away the unreality found in so many of the traditional carols. To think less in our minds of infants wearing tea towels, or three kings presenting gifts, and of cows and sheep around a crib in a wooden stable we should always be asking ourselves, what does the Bible actually say? What does the Bible actually teach? Fact or fiction? Apart from anything else, we need to separate Christmas from Epiphany. The shepherds came at Christmas and the Magi at Epiphany. So what then are we to believe? What do we celebrate at this time of year? How are we to understand the significance of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ? We certainly need to revisit the text, to look afresh at what is said in Luke and in Matthew, and to ground our thinking in the first chapter of John's Gospel, where it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. These verses here in Matthew 2 bring out the themes of the exile to Egypt and of the exodus out of Egypt, of God's sovereign providence in keeping the Holy Family safe and in then leading them back to Nazareth 
One commentator says this, Matthew has a word of encouragement about opposition. Opposition is inevitable, but it will never in the providence of God be allowed to quench God's mission. There was every possibility of quenching the Messiah. His mother Mary might have been stoned as an adulteress. He might have been killed by Herod. He might have been lost in Egypt. But no, God's hand was upon him. Opposition could not extinguish God's light. And in our own lives, we must constantly make the connection between the world of the Bible and the world of today, and we find that it is a world that resonates with ours, of dictators, of oppression, of being strangers in an unknown land, of exodus and of exile. And a personal exile can provoke a real testing of faith. Think of the cry of the Babylonian exiles. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? How can God be known outside the Holy Land, away from the Holy Temple and the Holy City? How can we believe in a God when we are separated from family and friends, when our work takes us away from home? when we deliberately go our own way and turn our backs upon the Lord himself. Think of the Holy Family in Egypt. They must have been there for two or three years. One tradition says seven years. Perhaps they were living among the million or so Jews who lived in Alexandria. They were far from home, away from family and friends. They knew what it was like to be strangers, to be refugees, but of course we know little about Jesus' early years, so mustn't speculate, as did the writers of the apocryphal Gospels. In his Gospel, Luke tells us that Mary treasured all of these things in her heart. And I think that needs to be much more of our own personal response to Scripture. Certainly to reflect upon the significance of the Incarnation. To reflect upon Jesus' death and resurrection to reflect upon his coming again. To face up to those times in our lives when we have felt alone and afraid. Perhaps we've even run away. We've done a Jonah, deliberately done a runner. God has said one thing and we have done another. But even in our exile, have we sensed God's leading and direction? And has our exodus generated faith and hope? I wonder, are we as responsive to God's promptings as were Joseph and Mary? God spoke directly to them, and they trusted him, and they obeyed him. They were attuned to hearing God's voice. We may or may not interpret dreams as they did, but we have the scriptures through which God can address us if we allow him to do so. We need to be attentive to his still, small voice, to hear and to obey. In the year ahead, resolve more to look to the Lord, to trust him and be prepared to obey him, and to be more conscious of his presence, his leading and his divine direction, to live more by faith, to live more for Jesus, and less for self, 
and certainly to treasure all of these things in your hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the incarnate word and we pray that day by day we might be reminded of that significant truth taught to us so powerfully in scripture. And we pray again, Heavenly Father, that you would open our eyes that we might behold your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.